Hey folks, welcome back to another night of exciting Twitches or whatever. I don't know what they're called if they're on a different service. So if you're watching this on like Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, I don't know, a live stream. Let's go with that. So today we have a really exciting and special episode because it's something that I am uh, really interested in and getting better at. And it's also something I think that there's been a a really big surge in the last, I would say, four or five years on the left of interest, and that's around hunting. So I think it's like a natural uh, progression to the process of uh, getting more in touch with where your food system or food comes from, especially if you eat meat. Uh, while a lot of people want to farm or grow crops or raise chickens or whatever it might be, uh, there's a lot of limitations in terms of like land access and stuff like that. Whereas with hunting, you can live in a city and still go and harvest your own meat that you're eating. So I think in a lot of ways, it can be more accessible. And obviously, there's some challenges around gun uh, gun access, the affordability and things like that. And that's a whole other conversation, which we might be getting into, to be honest. I, I don't know. So today, we've got a really special guest, the socialist bow hunter. You can find him on Instagram at, at socialistbowhunter. He posts a lot of really cool stuff, a lot of his hunting uh, treks, and uh, today he's going to talk about the basics of hunting for folks that didn't grow up around it, because I think for a lot of folks, if you didn't grow up around hunting, it's really hard to figure out how to get into it. And this is something from my own personal experience, where if you want to hunt, the, the whole process can be like really intimidating to get into, especially if you didn't grow up around guns to add to it. So I'm going to bring him on and uh, we're going to have a great talk. Yeah, there we go. Look at that. I know how technology works. How's it sure. going? Doing great. How are you? Awesome. Surprised no one has popped up in the chat. I don't know what's been going on the last few days. No one wants to talk. So yeah, guys, right. come say hi um there we go there we go we got folks um so yeah uh introduce yourself yeah um uh, so i'm adam um i go by the uh, tag at uh, socialist bow hunter um so i started hunting only in uh, 2020 um so i i guess uh in terms of you know getting into it as a leftist and getting into it as an adult and uh without a whole ton of like family involvement um yeah, I, I just did it um, with uh, with at least a m moderate amount of success. So uh, that's been pretty cool. Um, I work yeah, as so an engineer. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say uh, that's inspirational in itself. I think in the fact that you can go from nothing to like basically self taught uh, and like be at a, a point where you can teach something about it. Uh, it's yeah. just really cool. Yeah, and I, I don't want to like say like self-taught is maybe not the right word, but like there are resources out there and like I'll tell you about as many of them as I can and, you know, get me on Instagram later and I'll tell you more of them. But uh, yeah, you can go from like you can go from nowhere to like taking your first year in like a month. That's what I did. Um, That's awesome. Now, I, I'll, I'll say I already knew uh, how to shoot a bow, so I had, had that advantage. But yeah, I started off like when I started off, I didn't even understand which uh, direction the the tracks meant that the deer were walking like i actually had it backwards for uh, the first few months of hunting uh, so yeah i've come, come quite a long way uh i think anyway um awesome. so uh i actually grew up as a conservative uh, so i've uh, come a long way in that respect as well um so like when i was in high school started reading uh like secular philosophy like getting away from like christian stuff uh, and that from there, I, you know, met new people in college and, uh, 
just the, the journey left continued uh, until I eventually was like really into Bernie in 2016. Uh, and then in 2017, somebody got me to read the bread book. Uh, so, <laughs> so here we are. So, nice. you know, bread, bread book leads to Satan revolution and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, yeah. So that's how we got here. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so that's a whole other conversation we could have about the relationship between yeah. uh, like hunt, hunting and conservative culture and where there's a lot of overlap yeah. between us and anar our anarchists and uh, these conservative, especially rural conservative folks. Yeah. Um, so before we even get into it, uh, like I know you said you, you were familiar with like using a bow. Uh, had you really spent any time around guns or was it still kind of foreign? No. So I didn't shoot a, a rifle for the first time uh, until this summer. Um, I shot a 22, like once at church camp when I was uh, like 13, but I never shot anything else till this summer. Uh, I shot a shotgun once when I was in hunter safety, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about like classes and stuff later, but I shot like three shotgun shells at hunter safety until again, this spring when I bought my first shotgun. Uh, so no, it wasn't really around guns, uh, until I was uh, an adult in, in my mid twenties or late twenties. That's now. awesome. Yeah. So I, I also, I didn't, I never touched a gun until I was in my twenties. Now I'm a bit older. Um, but yeah, even my wife actually this past weekend, she had shot her first, um, pistol and it, nice. it took a long time to get there. And she was like, Oh, the, the nine millimeter was too strong, but I really liked the 22 revolver. And I was like, cool. I'm just happy you went out. It's awesome. Yeah. It's a good experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's intimidating, yeah, I, but it's awesome. Yeah, oh, it's sure. absolutely intimidating. And anyone that says it's not the first time is a fucking liar. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, uh, there's no way it can't be, and it should be. Like, it, it's this thing that has this incredible power. Of course, it should have, like, some serious, like, ramifications and, like, recognition of that. Um, so yeah. I guess let's get, let's transition to the, the hunting side. So what got you a little bit interested in hunting? And then kind of what were those steps you started taking? Um, so like I mentioned, uh, I already knew how to shoot a bow. And the reason is my dad, a man of many hobbies had pursued hunting for maybe two or three years when I was pretty young. Um, he got into it because of a family friend and didn't really stick with it. Um, so as a result though, I had a bow. So I shot a bow all through, uh, being like a young teenager all through high school. So I had that uh, huge advantage. Um, so during uh, the uprising in 2020, I actually, uh, at a protest in the Detroit area, connected with somebody that I knew from college uh, who had uh, gotten into hunting, and he uh, invited me out shooting with him at the archery range. It was less than a week later, we were in the woods together. Um, so that was, I think, like October 18th or something, 2020. Um, so Perfect not, timings. Perfect time yeah. of the year. Yeah. Uh, like I wasn't even like, uh, October 1st is a uh, Michigan, uh, archery opener. I was not ready. I had no camo. I had no gear. I had a bow. Um, that was it. Um, but yeah, I knew how to shoot a bow. So I had a, you know, awesome advantage. And then I, I took a deer, uh, on November 9th of that, of that same year, uh, on, on public land as well. So, uh, yeah, I got into it really quick and like really, really headlong and, uh, even after I, I took a deer in November, but I probably hunted 30 to 40 times after that. Um, all through um, the late season uh, that we have near the Detroit area uh, for deer control. Uh, yeah, so I've really jumped into it. In the spring, I hunted turkey for the first time, and I'll be doing that again in about two months. And then this year, I started hunting upland birds as well, and I bought a, I bought a hunting dog, so I have a nine-month-old black lab <laughs> puppy running around. 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. That you, Did you get the dog specifically for that or did it just like kind of yes. coincide? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's super I, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I really jumped uh, all the way into it in the last couple of years and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, like you mentioned, one of the main reasons for doing it is, uh, you know, to, to harvest wild meat. Um, so it's, it's been a, a huge plus as well. So, yeah, that's interesting um, that you, you were, I, I don't know, like that you were a conservative and you never got into hunting. And it was only when you went kind of this other direction, that's like very non-traditional in hunting that yeah. you're like, I, I want to embrace uh, this part of my culture and my concerns about like where my food comes from and all of these things. Um, but even though like, and, and I think that's like something that's uh, really common right now for, I think our generation that's been so yeah. disconnected from foodways. So, yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about. And, uh, like it's really easy for, uh, for me to blend in, you know, white male cishet, uh, I blend in, um, yeah. but not everybody has that luxury. So, uh, it's, it's good that we hopefully are having a resource like this that will help other people uh, get the exposure yeah. and the knowledge that they need. That's the hope. I mean, even, I, I feel like I see a lot of people talk about this idea of like how to get into like the, the hunting realm and, um, like, especially me that didn't, I didn't get into guns until I was in my twenties and I still struggle with a lot of the jargon around it. And I, I think there's a lot of people like that. And it's like, all right, add this other layer of hunting. And then there's all these regulatory pieces to not just owning a gun, but hunting the tags. Uh, and then there's like the biological component of like breaking down the animal and like turkeys are easy for me. Cause I raise turkeys and chickens and all these animals. And it's the same thing but like getting into deer it's like you, you got to know what you're doing uh, you're talking about a big yeah. animal and you got to break it down you need the infrastructure to manage the meat so it doesn't go bad um yes. so, so there's like a lot of pieces and like collectively it, it can be really overwhelming and yeah. uh, that's that's why i think this stuff is really important yeah the the effort and the amount of money that you have to spend and the amount of time you have to spend to do this uh is huge but the payoff can also be huge yeah. There's also the risk that it doesn't, you know, there's a joke. People say they, Oh, we eat, eat tag soup because you didn't, uh, didn't make a harvest. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that happens too. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it's, it takes a lot, but the payoff is huge. Uh, and if you, if you can, and you want to, I'd say it's definitely worth it. Awesome. So, all right. Assuming, uh, do you want to, do you want to talk about uh, gun regulations at all or how to get a gun or you want to just jump into more of the hunting side of things? Let's jump more into the hunting side of things because I think probably a lot of other folks are better suited to talk about uh, firearm regulations, but I can talk a little bit about hunting regulations uh, as well. But uh, let's see what I, I got here. Um, okay, let's just start off. Let's talk about like the food ethics a little bit. Um, so I guess when a lot of people think about hunting, uh, that's one of the, that's one of the main things you think of, you think of probably food and you think of, uh, trophy hunting, which a lot of people, there's a lot of negative connotations associated with, uh, trophy hunting. Um, just to give people like an idea, a lot of times you, you just hear meat, but you don't actually hear numbers associated. So here, here's some uh, numbers that I thought were helpful. So, uh, out of like 2000 deer harvested in Ohio, the average across all those deer, male and female was 50 pounds of venison. Um, so that's about a 50% meat yield. So average deer uh, across, you know, hundreds of samples is about hundred pounds and you'll yield about 50% meat off of that deer. Um, so about 50 pounds. So the deer I took uh, this year was a little bit uh, above 50 pounds or a bit above hundred pounds. And we took a little bit over 60 pounds. So 
um, it's a lot of meat. It's, it's substantial. Uh, and like yeah. you just mentioned, uh, like my, my, my freezer was completely stuffed. Uh, uh, it's yeah, amazing. It's you look at inside the empty freezer and you're like, this thing's huge. And then you start putting yeah. stuff in it and you're like, Oh, this is, this is full. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's so, it's so much meat, so much work. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the reality of, of a white tailed deer. So, um, if you can harvest one, uh, it's a, it's a lot of meat and it's, it's red meat. It's a lot like, uh, it's a lot like, uh, beef, but it's just, it's leaner. So, um, so that's what I'm, I'm going to talk about, uh, white tailed deer and Turkey primarily today, but just a few other species. Um, a mule deer is also about 50 pounds. Um, so we got a quick question, uh, about yeah. why there's such a small percentage of meat coming from these animals. Okay. So, uh, other things that, uh, take up part of that hundred pounds would be the, the skeleton, the, the hide, um, the, the head itself. A lot of people aren't eating anything on the head. Um, the legs, or, organs know, and intestines. Yeah. Or, organs that are, um, uh, field dressed and removed. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And a lot I would of stuff also... that you just don't eat. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also say that, um, there are a lot of hunters that aren't very good at like actually getting the full capacity out of their, yes. their deer. Uh, yeah, and that's, it's a lot of work. that's, yeah, it's a lot of work. And like, there's, there's parts of the deer that they'll be like, yeah, that's not going to taste that good. I don't want to go through all this effort for that. Yeah. Um, or because they're just poor at like cooling down the deer at appropriate temperatures, they know it's going to go bad. Um, especially if, you know, the, the way they're, uh, bleeding it and things like that, you can end up with a lot of wasted product yeah. or wasted meat. Um, but you, you could probably, I mean, what do you, I don't know. Do you have an idea of like what you could theoretically, uh, harvest out of a deer, like percentage, like if you were to really fully get everything out of it, I'd imagine like 60, 65%. Yeah, I would think so. And also like that, those bones, like even though you're not going to eat the bones, you can make bone broth. Um, like there's, there's uses for other stuff. I mean, people tan the hide and you can, you know, deer skin is incredibly soft, stuff like that. So you can get other uses out of uh, parts that you're not eating as well. If you, if you wanted to. Yeah. And if you yeah, don't want to do the, 65. and if you don't want to do the, a lot of the butchering, go make friends with a butcher. Yeah. Yeah. Or get somebody that, you know, that, that knows how to do it and will do it for, you know, a couple pounds or whatever, but it, it's extremely labor intensive. Um, so when I harvested a deer last year, I took it to a butcher. I, uh, I'll probably regret that for the rest of my life, honestly. Um, uh, but this year I, uh, I did it with some help with some, uh, some people that knew what really what they were doing. Um, and it's still with, I think three or four of us working, it took, took, uh, three or four hours took a long time. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's pretty intensive. Um, now I also said, you know, you say 50 pounds, um, for an average deer, but if anybody has seen like a big deer, like big body, big antler deer, then that could be 75, hundred pound meat yield potentially. Um, like in Saskatchewan and Northern Minnesota, uh, deer are frequently large bucks are over 200 pounds. So if you're thinking 50% meat yield on a 250 pound buck, that's over hundred, you know, over hundred pounds. So. Uh, Make sure yeah, you got a freezer. A range. Yeah, you, you need a you need a uh, a chest freezer really if you're gonna take like for me if I had, if I had taken another deer this year I would have had to buy another freezer I would have had no choice or I would have had to get a, give it all away. Um, yeah, so uh, mule deer is about the same. Again, they sometimes have uh, you know much larger deer up in the two hundred plus pound range, but again, an average is about fifty. Uh, or 50 pounds of yield, so about 100 pound deer, uh, and then some smaller animals. So uh, duck would yield about a pound and a quarter is, is about average. 
wild turkey yields about 12 pounds. A pheasant could yield about a pound. An elk could yield north of 200 pounds. I have a colleague that I pulled 270 pounds off of an elk uh, last year. Um, yeah, so a lot, a lot of huge range here. And then there's, of course, smaller birds like dove, quail, grouse, and those birds probably would only yield maybe like six ounces, four to six ounces. Um, so yeah, there's a pretty, pretty huge range. Um, so definitely the big meals are with your, uh, your deer and your other large game like that. Any, uh, any thoughts about, uh, meat yields or anything like that? Yeah. And I think, um, and you might bring this up later, I'm not sure around deer, you know, it's one of those things that we think of as like, well, I don't know if I want to say you think of as, but more, you know, deer is something that are so ubiquitous on the landscape that we don't really think about the fact of how many there are versus the carrying capacity of the landscape. And that yes. plays into a lot of, um, the, why, even though, you know, we're talking about like hunting for food, it's also beneficial for the, the deer population itself too. Yes. Yep. So, uh, deer populations have to be managed, especially because we've logged most of the, the country. So the deer have more cover now than they ever did before. Um, so there's more of them. There's more accidents than ever. Like I mentioned uh, briefly at the, at the start that I hunted the late season. So in the Detroit area, there's late seasons that you can hunt all the way through, uh, January. So it's like four full months of hunting you can do in my area. Because, How many tags uh, are you allowed to get? I don't think there's a limit. I think there's a daily limit, um, but I don't think there's an overall <laughs> limit. So so there would be a buck limit, but on doe tags, which uh, you control population through does. Uh, a buck will breed 20 does. So if you shoot the, that buck, then another buck will be, breed those 20 does. So you can't control population through shooting bucks. It has to be through does. Uh, but yeah, like up north, they're like five bucks, uh, five bucks a doe tag. And I think I can buy like three or four a day or something like that. Jesus. Uh, yeah. You can get two a year here. Wow. Yeah. Two year, uh, two deer, two, two turkeys. Yeah. Oh, uh, we only can take one turkey here. So yeah, there's a, uh, there's a huge amount of variation. Basically every state has uh, some different, some different regulations, uh, which, uh, yeah, we'll talk about a little bit. Okay. So let me just kind of wrap up the, the food aspect. Um, for, for me, I think. The, the fact that it's more ethical than uh, factory farming is huge. Like these animals get to exist in their natural environment, which by the way, includes predators uh, right up until their dying moment, they get to use all of their senses, which were developed with over the course of millions of years, again, to deal with predators. Um, they get to use all those against me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's, uh, I think it's a lot more ethical than fact factory farming. And it's a, it's a skill that I get to carry with me now. So, uh, yeah, I, I, th I, I think, uh, there's a lot of reasons why, but those are just a few of mine. Yeah. All right. Uh, next thing I have. Um, so I mentioned just a second ago that most of the country was logged, um, especially Michigan. There's only a few hundred acres in the entire state that were not logged and logged twice. Um, you talked about that on your podcast uh, as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, a common theme here in the United States where most of it, except for the mountaintops, have basically been logged at some point. Yeah, in Michigan, to my knowledge, there's only like 50 or so acres um, in the Lower Peninsula. Uh, that's old growth in the entire Lower Peninsula, millions of acres, so uh, pretty crazy. Um, yeah, so as a result of that, uh, in the U.S., we have something that's called the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. 
which kind of defines the philosophy for how laws uh, surrounding wildlife and hunting and all that are supposed to behave. So as I'm sure we all know, the practice is a lot different, but the, the, the philosophy uh, is a lot different than other places in the world, like Europe, where um, land and the way that resources are treated is a lot different. So there's seven principles of the North American uh, model, which is wildlife as a public resource, markets for game are eliminated, allocation of wildlife by law, so that's like your tags uh, and seasons, wildlife can only be killed for a legitimate purpose, uh, wildlife species are considered an international resource, science is the proper tool for discharge of wildlife policy, and the democracy of hunting. So all those things, uh, they sound really great in practice and it, functionally, they're actually not so bad. Um, we have amazing public land access in the US when compared to many other countries. Uh, wildlife is a public resource here, unlike many other places. Uh, so a lot of this stuff holds uh, fairly true, um, but like many things, you'll find it holds more true the the wider you are, uh, things like that. Um, not in America. Come on. Yeah, no, never in America. Uh, and also the richer you are. So we talk about the democracy of hunting or the or science is the proper tool. Uh, all, all of these things are true right up until it meets the dollar. Um, so something to just to keep in mind. Um, but a, as a result of this model, um, there's a lot of public land. Uh, basically, all wildlife can be hunted in every single state, all 50. There is some wildlife that can be hunted. Uh, and the compared to like 100 years ago or about 110 years ago, most wildlife populations are in much better shape, generally speaking. Um, so like, for example, in Michigan, uh, the elk population was 100% extirpated. There was zero elk in Michigan in 1900. And now there is a few thousand. Uh, there was also zero turkeys in Michigan in 1900. And now there's thousands. Um, Arctic grayling were fished to extinction. Uh, now they're reintroducing the Northern Peninsula. How the hell do you kill all of the turkeys? That is, I, I don't know. That's impressive. Like yeah. if it weren't so disgusting, it's impressive. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why, that's why we need this model because, um, you know, uh, we'll fucking do it again uh, without it, you know? Um, yeah. So that's why we have the model. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we just, we think so much about how we're destroying the environment, destroying the environment, which is very, very true. Uh, but there are conservation success stories out there. So uh, I'm from Michigan. I know those ones the best, but many states, many states had turkeys extirpated and reintroduced as well as uh, elk. Uh, and then you also see a uh, fish species as well. But turkey is a huge one for uh, conservation. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's that's the model. Uh, so based on that, uh, there are hunting laws and seasons. So basically every state manages this uh, differently. Uh, if you look at my Instagram, I have a link tree, uh, which has a little spreadsheet, which has a link to the regulations of every single state. So unfortunately, there's probably no real getting around it. You just need to read the the hunting regulations. Like it probably take in Michigan and take me like an hour to read or something. Um, but I do it every year. Uh, just unfortunately, that's kind of what you're going to have to be stuck doing. Uh, but you might find out some stuff that you are very surprised by in terms of uh, accessibility, cost, what the seasons are like, maybe even what kind of programs your state offers for classes. Um, you, you really might be surprised what's out there. Uh, so definitely look into what your state offers. Yeah, and I'll piggyback on that. In Massachusetts, um, all the hunting classes continue, like that education component is free, uh, which is really great. Um, I know in Maine that they offer online classes for like 20 bucks. 
uh, and you can get your hunting license in Maine for $20 fully online. And then if you want to cool. go there, you have friends there, whatever you want to go hunting, you know, there might be a lot more opportunity there than where you live, or you can then use that license or that education to get licensed in the state you're in. Yes. So that, <clears throat> and, that's uh, to know. COVID uh, made hunting education a lot more accessible uh, because, you know, like you said, people were getting into it, uh, just, you know, just like me, right? I, you know, when I was a kid, I took hunter safety when my dad was, you know, in his little hunting foray. So I, I was already set to go. But if I hadn't been, I, in theory, would have been hosed, except for they had um, online options. And since they did it once, a lot of that stuff is still available. So in theory, it's easier than ever to get licensed out, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so uh, generally, um, most of the hunting seasons are in the fall. So waterfowl is in the fall. So that's like ducks and geese and stuff. Uh, big game like deer are in the fall. There is also uh, fall turkey, which is usually uh, female birds are hunted for population control um and then uh other upland birds uh the bulk of the hunting uh basically is in is in the fall and then it extends uh fairly late into the winter depending on how close to the equator you are uh, whereas the, we're, we're all done up here people are still pretty active in the south um and then in the springtime we have turkeys uh there's also in the some places there's spring bear seasons uh, but i don't know much about bear hunting uh except for uh it may have a bad rep uh and you know, allegedly bear meat is very good. Bear uh, grease is very useful for cooking. So I don't know a whole ton about it, so I won't say more. But uh, yeah, springtime you hunt turkeys, and usually um, the hunting seasons coincide with either a migration or a, a breeding cycle. So in the case of deer and many other bovine uh, cow-like animals, it's the fall. And turkeys, yeah. it's the spring. Yeah, and one of the comments is about uh, feral hogs being a year-round sport because of the yeah. fact that they just they're so invasive. <laughs> Yes. Um, and they're so aggressive and damaging. Uh, it's not just that they're, they overtake spaces, but they so aggressively do it. Um, so there's pretty much no rules when it comes to hogs. Fortunately, we haven't had them in Massachusetts yet, but I'm sure, I'm sure they'll make their way here. Um, also someone asked about trapping versus hunting and your thoughts on it. Um, so I've done a tiny bit of trapping, uh, not much, but a little bit, um, so for fur bears, I suppose if you are uh, going to you know, use furs, then that, that's fantastic. But there's not a whole ton of animals that you are trapping for food. People are mostly trapping predators and pests and stuff like that. In which case, um, I don't know, like predator hunting, I don't love it, but sometimes it's necessary. Um, yeah, I, I, sorry, sorry, that's not a great answer. But if it's necessary, then I suppose um, I, I'm all about trapping. Uh, but I guess I'm not going to be super enthusiastic about going and doing it either yeah I, i'd agree uh it's something i do so as i was saying there's free classes in my state they have a free uh trapping class and i want to take it just to like get a better grip on it uh but they haven't offered it because it's not popular um so it, it's not something that's super common here i'm not sure if maybe in the midwest and the up in the great lakes region if it is more common but um yeah it's not something we see very often around here yeah it's pretty rare um okay so uh i mentioned a little bit about uh habitat and how there's more deer deer habitat now than ever before be as a result of clear cutting uh so that in theory sounds like a good thing um but there's a lot of other species like turkey elk uh, lots of upland birds that have had major habitat loss um or uh have been overhunted and their habitats restored but they have to be um uh, seeded into the areas 
Uh, so habitat management is a is a huge deal that our like, state organizations focus on, uh, as well as like private organizations, and they're doing that uh, in the ways that you would expect. So clear cutting still is happening uh, for timber harvest, as well as you know, forest rejuvenation, and then uh, controlled burning is also happening. And you're seeing, or I'm seeing at least more and more conservation organizations seem to be interested in uh, prescribed burns, which is really interesting. Um, I know you've talked about that uh, quite a bit more than, than. Uh, yeah, I mean, so. it's it's so deer. Uh, I want to circle back a little bit to that. You were talking about like um, the landscape. Well, the reason why we have so many deer, uh, not only because we've gotten rid of their predators, but also like if you think about like what a suburban landscape looks like, there's trees dotted in grasslands. That's basically a savanna. Obviously, it's much more simplified, but that's what it is, and that's their ideal habitat. So like it's no surprise then that they just like have become totally overrun. Yeah, and they're incredibly evolutionarily capable, which um, is evidenced by the way that they've reacted to hunting in the last like fifty years, even, um, which is pretty interesting. If you talk to some old timers, um, okay. So if you wanna if you wanna hunt, most people don't own a, a substantial amount of land to hunt on. Uh, I would say like a lot of people would a lot of people would probably say that anything less than like 20 acres is not even worth hunting on unless you have like deer moving through it or turkeys moving through it. Um, but like we already mentioned, luckily there's a ton of public land in the U S. Um, so, and that unfortunately varies a little bit by state. So I say that, uh, here in Michigan, where we have some of the most amazing public land anywhere in the state or anywhere in the country, but there's other states that you will really struggle. Um, so, uh, depending on your state, you'll have things like uh, state game areas, state forests, national forests, uh, state recreation areas, state parks. Um, I think those are, I think, the, all five like classifications of state land that I can hunt in here in Michigan. So there's a lot of them. It's hundreds of thousands, maybe a million acres of stuff that I can hunt. Um, and like you mentioned at the beginning, some of it's pretty close to the city. So I live close to Detroit, like close to Detroit. Like I can like, yeah, close to Detroit. But I drive an hour and I, um, that's where I, an hour from my house is where I took both my deer, um, different directions, but only an hour. So, um, those, those chunks of a few thousand or even a few hundred acres are, are more than enough, depending on where, uh, where they're at. So different states will have different ways for you to find, uh, your public land in Michigan. There's something called MI hunt. Um, I don't know what the equivalents are for other states, but, um, if you, if you can't find it, then talk to me and I'll uh, find somebody that can help you. Um, but there's yeah. also, sorry. I was going to say, uh, I know at least a few other states that have something similar uh, in the Northeast. So I imagine that's pretty standard uh, where you can get charts. You can, I know in Massachusetts, there's a website. I can't think of the link off the top of my head, but you can literally go and punch in your address and it'll tell you the like 10 closest uh, parks or forests or whatever that you can hunt within. Uh, that are like within like 20 or 30 miles from your house. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And then, um, there's also other options. Like I use, uh, an app on my iPhone called Onyx and it's probably like the single most popular, like GPS hunting map app. And it's specifically dedicated for hunting. Uh, they have like trail and camping ones as well, but I use the hunting one. Um, it marks public and private land. It'll show you with extremely high accuracy where those, uh, property lines are and it'll also color code the land you can hunt on and not so uh super helpful um people even use it to ask permission to hunt on farmers lands because it'll give you the uh whoever's name is associated with the, the property taxes it'll give you their name even um so onyx is really really cool and then it has uh map hunting uh 
like marking tools. Like you can mark, uh, oh, a deer was bedded here, or I found tracks here, or whatever. Um, all kinds of helpful marking tools. So yeah, I use that 100% of the time when I'm in the woods, I'm using Onyx. Um, so yeah, there's my little plug um, for that. But there's, there's other stuff like base map. Uh, there's a few others that are similar. Um, but yeah, so that's extremely helpful uh, if you're just getting into this because it gives you that extra insurance. Like, yeah, I'm on public land. Um, and also it'll, it'll be a useful tool for you to record stuff uh, that you want to go back and check again, things like that. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, that whole process, I think, helps make things so much more accessible because the fact that it's just like you don't feel it helps break down those walls of it feeling like really impenetrable to do things without knowing what you're doing. And uh, yes. like, especially if you're trying to do this, I don't want to say like, yeah, I mean, you might be solo. You might be like literally going out on your own and learning. I wouldn't recommend it, but people do it. Um, so like having the the resources like apps is super helpful. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't start using it for the first few months. I was just trying to use Google maps and dropping pins all over the place. And it just, I mean, if, if that's your only option, it'll work. Uh, but if you, if you can afford a little bit of an investment, then that'll definitely, uh, it'll help. It'll help a lot. And it'll also show you trails, uh, topography, stuff like that. It's really helpful if you can, if you can uh, swing it. Um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. Um, okay, so then uh, hunting organizations. So you you mentioned earlier that uh, generally people associate hunting with conservative folks, period. Um, however, there are a few organizations out there that lean more centrist um, uh, or maybe even lean a little bit uh, on the left. So I'll, I'll just mention all those quickly. So uh, first is backcountry hunters and anglers. Uh, they're probably like the largest conservation organization in the country. Um, and they also, they market themselves as centrist, but as a result, I think they kind of lean a little liberal, um, cause they, it's kind of repellent, uh, for many conservatives. Um, so, um, again, I'm not going to say, oh, like, you know, I'm not going to hundred percent endorse any of these organizations, but I know for sure that they do good work, um, uh, and, and that they do market themselves as centrist. Um, another one would be like Ruffed Grouse Society. Uh, they're very science-backed, um, and they've always had a reputation for that. Uh, and again, they're really into like prescribed burns and things like that for habitat management. So that's an interesting one. Um, NWTF, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. They're, they've been huge for the turkey restoration. Um, I, I'm not a part of that organization, but they, I know they do a, a ton of work with bird releases and habitat uh, habitat work and things like that. Whitetails Unlimited is the biggest uh, deer organization, but I have no association with them. I'm just going to name drop it because it exists. Um, and then some uh, other cool organizations that I uh, will endorse, at least uh, in part, uh, will be uh, Hunters of Color. So for uh, people of color that are looking to get into hunting, uh, they're providing resources. They, they're even doing like events and stuff in a lot of different states. Uh, if nothing else, they're uh, promoting each other. So if you want to find uh, other people of color that are doing this kind of thing, then go there. You will find them. Um, and another one would be uh, Queers and Camo, uh, which I'm sure you can guess. That's uh, a lot of queer folks, uh, trans folks, et cetera, that are into hunting. And uh, I don't think they're as big and active as Hunters of Color, but uh, definitely if you're looking for uh, your people, these are places to look. Uh, yeah, so I think that's it about orgs. Anything to uh, to add about NGOs or anything like that? Yeah, there, there's a lot of people that are uh, heavily invested uh, in trying to. Um, it, it, 
conservation is such a weird area because of the fact that you've got this like weird meshing of like science backed evidence that drives policy and our conservation laws are a really interesting way to like look at how uh society could organize because you it's basically you've got these people that are experts saying this is what we see and then they get feedback from um people in the community and that's how a lot of how these organizations also work because that's how people think about conservation because of the way our conservation infrastructure exists um so like there's groups like ducks unlimited uh and a number of others that are doing really cool stuff um and you know they they're there's you know apolitical but there's like uh it's not as conservative as you might think yes yeah it's like uh people that are maybe like more socially conservative generally or even economically conservative but then they like have an environmentalist streak in them uh it's really interesting so and also you talk about finding common common ground a lot um and if you want to talk about a way to find common ground it's with something that people are really passionate about and people get really passionate about their wildlife Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's an, it's an interesting chance as an inroad um, as well. If, if you're looking for that kind of thing and it's safe for you to do that, then it's maybe a chance for an inroad as well. Um, yeah, and uh, some couple comments about uh, other uh, gun-specific non-conservation organizations. Yes, There's yes. a ton. There's SRA, Arm Your Friends, um, ARA, the Anarchist Rifle Association. Although they're pretty quiet. Um, there's been other groups that have ebbed and flowed. Uh, like Redneck Revolt, which obviously doesn't exist anymore, uh, but there's been a number of spinoff projects from that. I couldn't name them all, to be <laughs> to be completely honest. And even if you're looking for something a little bit bigger and more formalized, even like the Liberal Gun Club is uh, yep. a resource that, again, they're liberals, but you know you're, you'll probably feel a little bit more comfortable, especially if you are a marginalized person. Um, but like honestly. 90% of the time when you're in gun in a gun community or like in a, a group of people that are interested in guns, they're just psyched that, especially if you're like at a gun range, they're just psyched somebody young is there. Because uh, I'm assuming most of our audience is under 40. Uh, because in a lot of ways, uh, there's a lot of fear that gun culture is disappearing. And like, in my own experiences, even if they are pretty right-leaning, most people are happy to see somebody. And uh, Elliot's not with us, but he was telling me about that. Uh, like his first time going to a range as a, a black guy and like all these old white dudes that look like they'd be super racist were just like pumped that he was there. Yeah. Um, so like we, as much as we talk about like conservatives having this like image of what like an anarchist or a communist or whatever it looks like and like these very broad stereotypes that aren't really true, we sometimes do that to the right as well. Yes. Uh, where there are a lot of people that aren't bad people. They just have different opinions about things. And our, our job is to, to help them see the flaws in those. Uh, but to circle back to this conversation about guns, um, you know, going to, you know, these different organizations, even if they're not explicitly socialist or anarchist, um, especially if you're a little bit more thoughtful about it and not just pick a random one, uh, you'll, you'll find some good people there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I've been fortunate to connect with the local uh, SRA myself, and I've been very, very glad to do so. Um, yeah, that's all. Fantastic. Um, so I guess that was the next thing I was going to talk about is going to be uh, guns and bows and stuff. So uh, perfect timing. Um, so um, generally, okay, I guess I'll talk about bows first. So um, there's generally bows are, are classified uh, two different ways, uh, or I guess three different ways. Uh, compound bows, which are bows that use a pulley and cable system. 
Um, so that's like uh, Mybo. Um, I, I can pull it up and show, I guess. Um, but uh, it basically uses a, a pulley system and they have let off. So when you pull the bow, as you reach full draw length, the, the weight of holding that draw is drastically reduced. So you can, in theory, hold a 80 pound draw and it, it feels like 20 pounds, just as, as an example. Um, so that get, lets you hold the bow back for longer, lets you shoot longer distances and it lets you shoot more accurately. Um, so that's why compound bows are so popular. They shoot really fast because they're using a pulley system. They have uh, arrow rests and sights and all that kind of stuff. So like when I shoot a bow, I have a bow string touching my nose. I'm looking through my string at a sight. Um, so it's very much like shooting a, a gun, I guess, and that you have, you know, anchor points like a cheek weld with a rifle. Uh, and, and you're aligning, uh, aligning sights, you know, front and rear and, uh, and shooting. So, uh, I'd say pretty, uh, relatively simple learning curve, but, uh, yeah, shooting bows uh, take, takes a lot of practice, but if you're going to start, I would say, I would probably recommend starting with compound. And then, uh, there's of course traditional bows, which is what everybody would think of, which are like recurve long bows, things like that. So that, that's just, uh, you're putting energy into the limbs of the bow and releasing it. Um, so there is no mechanical assist from pulleys or any, any kind of, uh, it's basically just materials engineering and that's it. Uh, so that's a lot more complicated. Uh, well, it's, it's a lot less complicated, but it's harder to shoot. Um, and the, the arrow, arrow goes slower, um, less, uh, less arrow energy. Um, I would, I've never really shot traditional archery, but it's definitely on my to-do list. Once I finish getting good at other things, um, I'll, I'll learn it. And then uh, probably the simplest would be a crossbow, which is effectively just a, a gun that shoots an arrow. Um, uh, and, and in terms of that learning curve wise, if you can shoot a weapon through a, a scope, then you, you'd you be able to, to shoot a crossbow. And they're uh, relatively, you can get them pretty cheap compared to bows as well. Uh, yeah, they're very fun. <laughs> yeah, I've actually never shot a crossbow, but it's, it's on the list maybe. Yeah, they're uh, super fun. And then, uh, then guns. So, uh, of course, have rifles. So people hunt with tons of different rifle calibers, whether that be like two, two, three, or five, five, six, even uh, all the way up to big stuff like uh, four fifty Bushmaster um, stuff like that. So tons of different rifle calibers. Um, now, different states, there's different regulations about where you can and cannot use rifles. So in Michigan, uh, southern half of the state's pretty populated, so you cannot use rifles. Uh, in, in all situations uh, for, for hunting, only because of you know, muscle velocity and how far the bullets will travel. Um, people also use shotguns. So for a large game, you're using slugs, um, which is essentially just a, a normal like rifle bullet. Um, for birds, you're using bird shot. So for ducks, you have to use uh, steel uh, or something that's non-toxic because you're shooting over water and you can't put lead shot into the water. Um, and then uh, there's muzzle loaders. So like old school ramrod muzzle loader. Um, most states have a specific muzzle loader season. It's, it's really popular. People like shooting the uh, those types of guns. Um, yeah, so I, I said I'm not going to talk a whole ton about guns uh, today, but uh, it's just kind of what's out there. Yeah, it's kind of not it's kind of hard not to. I mean, you're it's, yeah, it's a core part of hunting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you think about it like, you know, I spent hundred, I know maybe hundreds of hours uh, between scouting, traveling, being out in the field and I draw and fire my bow. And that is a 15 second ordeal um, for the entire season, 15 seconds. Um, so it's a, it's a huge important part of it, but it's also such a small part of it. Um, 
So, yeah, it's really, yeah, yeah, not, there, there's a lot to it. Uh, I would say one thing to really consider with firearms, especially is uh, non-toxic stuff. Um, so basically all like training ammo uh, is all lead shot. Um, but a lot of people for rifles now are transitioning to copper bullets. Uh, and there, there, there's a few reasons for that. Um, so, so first is the bullets don't break apart. So the lead bullets tend to break apart. You get lead fragments all over the place. Um, people consume those, uh, lead, lead poisoning is obviously a huge concern. Um, so that, that's a huge risk. That's why people want to go to copper bullets. And then additionally, if you were to shoot and wound an animal and, uh, unfortunately you did not recover it and it died later, uh, or something like this, or you leave a gut pile with lead fragments in it and a scavenger, uh, eats it, then you could, uh, a small piece of lead could kill an eagle. Um, so the stakes are high for wildlife. If you're using uh, lead bullets and leaving it in animal remains that could potentially be devoured. It's not like you're shot it to the hill, like you left it somewhere that that scavengers went and are going to be eating. So there's a lot of reasons to uh, consider using copper bullets for hunting. Um, and then on the other side, I already mentioned steel shot for ducks. So it's actually a federal law. You have to use non-toxic shot if you're shooting ducks over water. Uh, that's because of lead poisoning. Um, but for other types of bird hunting, a lot of people were using lead in the woods um, because you're allowed, uh, but there is now other options. So you can use steel. Uh, a lot of people don't like using steel, but there is, um, copper plated bismuth tin alloy. Uh, there's some, there's a company that produces that in Michigan. That's what I'm using now. Um, and then there's also tungsten super shot. The tungsten is incredibly dense, like lead. Uh, it's about $8 a shell. Uh, so I use it only for Turkey. Um, but it's not toxic. So if I were to wound the turkey and it were to die later and a scavenger were to eat it, that would be a good thing. And I would not have to worry about that scavenger uh, being lead poisoned and dying. Uh, so definitely something to consider. Uh, we're, you know, we're talking about the ethics of, you know, of all this. So definitely don't, uh, don't skip that. Don't, don't go all this way and then uh, use lead bullets if, if you can yeah. avoid it. Yeah, don't pollute. Um, okay. So other equipment stuff. Uh, so you did talk a little earlier about, uh, like the, the prohibitive costs of, of getting into hunting. So, um, I think it was yellow apparel tactical posted about that on Instagram the other day. So I finally like added up like my, the gear that I started with basically like my cheap gear that I bought in 2020, most of which I am still using some of which is even in the room with me. Um, then like the total for clothing and other like miscellaneous gear, like even boots, gloves, uh, like a butt pad to sit on because sitting on the ground sucks, uh, was like $365. So, um, it's, it's not cheap to get into, unfortunately. Um, however, you have some options. So you can always look at, uh, like secondhand stores. You can, you can carefully hunt the sales. If you have uh, olive drab or you already have like tactical uh, multicam or whatever, you can incorporate these pieces to try to alleviate how much you need to buy. And then if you're just getting into it, I would say just get camo. So like a camo like hoodie, maybe like a zip fleece and then some camo pants and then use existing stuff you have to, to layer. Uh, like I said, it's in the fall. So Michigan gets pretty cold. So I mean, sometimes I'm wearing like three or four pairs of pants. I mean, that's just it. It is what it is. Um, so that's just ways that you try to reduce your costs. I think when I started off, I only spent about a, maybe like 70 or $80 on like a pair of pants and a, a camo rain jacket was the cheapest thing that I could find. And that was a way to you know, camouflage myself in the woods. So you do what you got to do and build one piece at a time. 
Yeah, and this time of year is great because all the winter stuff yes. has started to go on clearance. So if you are interested yes. to hunt next fall, the first thing you should probably buy is some camo. Yes. Yep. And really all you need is, you know, buy a hoodie that's maybe a size bigger than you would normally wear and some pants. And then you can layer underneath that stuff. It doesn't have to be crazy complicated. I mean, you can buy really nice gear. There's tons of it. Uh, and you, and if you keep doing this, you will want to probably, but if you're just trying to start, just get yourself, just turn yourself kind of neutral colored in the woods. Um, these animals, they, they're pretty bad eyesight, some of them. So, um, and then some places you are required to wear orange, uh, safety, uh, orange, uh, sometimes. So, okay, cool stuff. All right. On to specific, uh, animal stuff. Finally, because I'm uh, taking my merry time getting to it. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's start off with uh, deer behavior. Um, well, actually, um, did you want to talk about how to get tags and stuff like that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, so is that after? Uh, no, let's do that now. Let's do that now. Um, so the the way you buy tags, uh, of course, it'll vary by state. Um, but it, in Michigan, I'll, I'll give you our case here. Um, so you are required in Michigan to complete hunter safety. So that's usually a one day class. Like I mentioned earlier, you can do a lot of it online now. So uh, once you have that, then you are required to purchase a base license, which is uh, it's $17. And then uh, in Michigan, the tags are sold as a, a combo tag, which uh, sells you two tags that are valid for either does or bucks. And then after that, you can buy doe tags. Uh, so in my case, I can buy all that stuff online. They send you an email and you have a QR code to scan. Uh, some states are better than that. Some are worse. Like some have really nice apps and things like that. Uh, some places you, you're stuck going to a sporting goods store or tackle stores, things like that. A lot, a lot of places will sell licenses. Uh, like for, for instance, at the grocery, my nearest grocery store sells licenses uh, here in Michigan um, uh, and, and tags. So that's generally what you have to do is uh, complete a hunter safety course, buy a, a license each year, and then buy tags for the specific uh, animal that you are pursuing. That's generally how it works. Uh, and if you uh, look at uh, your state regulations and you can't figure it out, then just message me on Instagram and I'll read them and give you my interpretation. I'll help. No problem. Yeah. And that it's about the same here. Uh, the one thing that's nice about mass is that when you buy your tag, you can also do a combo pack for uh, like fishing permit. Yeah. So you can get access to everything for like, you get a little bit off. So it's like 50 bucks and you've got your salt water, fresh water and hunting. Uh, so you're pretty much ready to go, which is pretty yes. cool. Yeah, I think they do something like that in Michigan, and I, I don't remember how much it, it was, maybe like 60 or something like that. But yeah, not not too bad at all. Uh, and yeah, lots of that stuff just gets sent right to your phone, or sometimes they'll mail it to you. Uh, and then I guess uh, one more thing worth mentioning about tags is in certain in certain states and for certain species and for certain uh, seasons, so lots of caveats here, sometimes you have to uh, enter a lottery uh, in order to get a tag. Uh, this is more common uh, in, in the West uh, for elk and mule deer hunting than it is in, in the Midwest. Uh, but it, it is a thing that can happen. In Michigan, we actually have to apply for turkey. So I had to submit an application. There is a chance I could not be allowed to hunt turkey. Um, there's not really a chance, uh, but there is a chance that I, I could. Um, so, uh, yeah, one more thing to note. Um, so if, if you uh, look into a, something that you want to hunt, like turkey, don't forget to like save the date in your calendar so you don't miss the application. Um, and a lot of times if they don't receive as many applications as they want to sell tags, then they'll just sell them at stores like normal, like over the counter is what they call it. 
Um, but yeah, don't uh, don't accidentally screw yourself out of a season by by forgetting to pay a fee. And a lot of times that fee is really small, like five dollars or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but before we get in, you want to talk about like if you do bag the animal you're hunting about how you, how tags work. Yeah. So uh, in Michigan, so again, it's a little bit different by state, but in Michigan, you're required to. Uh, so the way the law reads or the regulation reads is you have to immediately tag your animal upon recovery. So when I walk up to the animal and, uh, you know, con I guess confirm it's dead. I, I never really had to confirm that, but uh, yeah. So walk up to the animal at the very first thing before we take pictures, before we call the wife, before we call the husband, before we call anybody like that we're tagging the animal so that's that's how the law works so you're tying it on a piece of string um stuff like that that's what i did for my last one is i just took it i had some twine in my hunting bag and then i just uh cut a little hole threaded it through tied it onto his leg um for the for the turkey i think i tied it onto the leg as well um so some states will have certain laws like you have to have evidence of sex um, on the animal until it's processed uh, other states will require that uh, for game birds, you have to have at least one wing on the bird in order to identify species until, again, it's it's butchered. Uh, so that's definitely something that you have to check state by state. We don't have anything really uh, odd like that in Michigan, uh, but you definitely should read your your regulations because you might be required to um, to leave something on. Uh, I actually I, I didn't know what the reg was in Michigan this year, and I shot a buck, so I left some testicles on, on the buck that I dragged out of the woods unnecessarily. Um, um, yeah, so that's how tagging works. And then, uh, a field dressing is a, uh, it's kind of a whole ordeal. Um, so when, once you find the animal, um, you remove guts that you're not going to eat. Uh, usually you remove them and leave them on the site. Uh, to my knowledge, there's nowhere that that's illegal. Um, but yeah, I would just leave it for scavengers, uh, especially since I shot uh, them with, uh, with a bow, there's no risk of any kind of you know lead contamination or anything like that. Um, yeah, and usually yeah. people move them off from if you're hunting near like a trail or something, you try to yes. not leave a mess. Yeah, um, yeah. So depending on where you are, yeah, you throw them off trail or like if you're well off trail, like I was, and I, I left them right in the spot where I found it. Um, so field field dressing is probably the least pleasant part of hunting, I would say. Um, I don't think anybody really likes it. Um, there's nothing to it, but, to to do it. Um, so the first time I, I shot a deer, I was in the woods by myself. Um, I recovered the deer, you know, going through all the, all the emotions associated with recovering a deer. And I saw somebody actually ask about, uh, I have a ritual and maybe I'll save that for the end. Um, yeah, it was pretty emotional, but then I, then you have to pull out the knife and, and get to work. And, uh, and then after that, then you have to drag an animal out of the woods. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but yeah, field dressing is pretty gross. Uh, there's lots of good videos out there. I'm not going to describe it to you, uh, but I actually was in the woods rewatching and watching and watching a YouTube video over and over and over again, because, uh, you think you're ready, <laughs> you think you're ready. And then, uh, next thing you know, you're up to your elbows and blood and you don't feel very ready. So you, you need some help. So I, I had to pull my phone out and watch, watch a video of somebody else doing it to, to, uh, do it properly. So, um, that was me yeah, with the, butchering my first chicken. <laughs> yeah. I Same mean, thing. Yeah. yeah, these are these are just real moments, you know. Like nobody's born an expert, and you know, that's how it went for me. And I'm I'm just glad I had had cell service. Otherwise, I would have just uh, been doing my best. Um, yeah, it's relatively intuitive, but yeah, there's plenty of videos out there for that. Um, it's gross, but just do it, and you you'll be done in you know, 20 minutes, and then 
go on to the butchering and eventually the, the eating and sharing it with your, your family and friends, which is the fun, fun parts. Yeah. So in Michigan, do you guys have to do anything like to let anyone know if you've, uh, if you're using a tag? Um, so I believe in Michigan, there is optional tag check-ins, uh, online. Uh, there also is like deer check stations that you can take your, uh, your animal to other States. Uh, they have an app. So like, as soon as people recover there, they take a picture of the deer and upload it right to the app and things like that. Um, so, so that, that varies as well. Um, and a lot of States are, are voluntary reporting on harvest numbers as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things you're like, okay, I know I did everything right to get here, but now I don't want to screw up and like illegally harvest this deer because I didn't report it right. Or I didn't tag it right. Uh, like in Massachusetts, you're required to like, if you're, if you're harvesting a deer, the deer needs to be visible, but not too visible. So like, it can't be like distracting and gruesome to people, but also like it needs to be visible enough that if the environmental police or somebody showed up, they could, they could recognize that you have a deer with you. Uh, which just like little things like that that are super fun. Yeah, like you, if you have it in the back of a, you know, capped truck and you can't have it under a tarp as well, it's weird stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And those regulations, like, uh, especially like you've mentioned before, like for marginalized people, you got to be careful because that book will be thrown at you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, something to be mindful of. Um, All right. So uh, you want to talk about some animals? Yeah, let's talk about some animals. So uh, let's talk about some deer first. Um, so uh, like I mentioned earlier, like deer, they've, they're, they're prey animals, first of all. Um, they're, they, all their senses are designed by evolution to evade predators. Uh, so that's like primarily wolves is like their, their biggest predator. Uh, but that includes us. Um, so they're very fast. So in like full leafed woods, they can outrun a wolf. Uh, they're capable of jumping like that. They jump 20 feet in a single single bound. Uh, their eyesight is a lot like dogs. So if you think about uh, how dogs are like partially colorblind and they're like a little bit fuzzy on their vision, deer are like that, but they're actually a little bit worse because they're not predators. So they have slightly worse vision. Um, their, their superpower is smell. They smell way, way better than your dog, any dog. Um, like the best bloodhound in the world does not smell as good as any deer. Um, so that's the sense, that's the sense that you as a hunter are trying to beat more than any other sense, uh, is their smell. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's the main, that's the main thing you're trying to avoid. So they have pretty good hearing. They have okay eyesight. Um, but I always think of their hearing as, uh, the hearing is like human hearing, but they have larger ears. So it's not like cup your ears. That's like a deer hearing. It's not, it's not amazing. Uh, but their, their scent is amazing. Like, detecting single parts per million. Amazing. Um, so that's what you have to avoid. Um, so when we hunt them in the fall, we hunt them during their breeding cycle, um, and, and before and after their breeding cycle, but, uh, the most, uh, like the hottest part of the hunting year, which is usually firearm season is right smack in the middle of uh, the breeding cycle, which is usually the second week of November. And again, if you head further South, uh, where it's warmer uh, later then that changes. Um, so when this breeding cycle starts, uh, the deer change their behavior a lot. So the, uh, the family, the buck groups, they break up all the bucks split up. The dominant bucks start looking for does. The non-dominant bucks also will look for does, but also they're trying to avoid, um, having to fight the larger buck who will fight all of them. If, uh, he has to for his does. Um, 
he will run around basically 24 hours a day looking for does and asterisks uh, or, or heat. That's the word for, uh, for a deer's heat. Uh, and those does are only in estrus for about 24 hours. So it's like there's a lot of action in the woods. He's running around trying to find does and breed as many of them as he can while fighting off other competing bucks um, the entire time. So that's uh, that's the rut. That's really like November like 15th to like 21st or so. Like That's like the hottest time of year for hunting. Uh, so leading up to that, like I said, their deer behavior changes. So um, the bucks will start, uh, they'll start rubbing uh, the bark off of trees to mark their territory, kind of like mark the edges of their range. Um, as I as I say this, maybe I'll pull some pictures of some of this stuff up. Uh, so uh, they'll pull, they'll uh, mark their range with uh, antler rubs, which is it, just a, a small little section, maybe like eight, 10 inches. They'll just rub the bark right off a tree. Um, and they usually don't return to these areas, but it helps you know there's a buck in this area and he's considering this as part of his range, if you were to see that. Um, they'll also start creating big ground scrapes. So it's, it's a weird thing deer do. So because they have such a strong sense of smell, um, a lot of their communication is through various scent glands and through their urine and uh, things like this. So they, they make these ground scrapes. They take their hooves and they scrape away all like the, the vegetation off the ground until it's just dirt and they'll just pee all over it. Um, and they'll also pee on these glands that they have uh, on their back legs called tarsal glands. So they'll kind of like squat down and pee right onto their tarsal glands and rub them together and get all the scent all over the ground. Uh, and they're doing this to mark their ranges, communicate about who's been where and when, um, things like that. And, and if you walk up to these, sometimes you actually can like smell it, like, because the, the urine is like actively evaporating. It's like really stinky and stuff like that. Um, so they start doing that while they're in rut. Um, and does will also urinate and make small ones while they're uh, on in estrus. So if you find like this year, I, I came across one of those that was had a scent to it. It was fresh, looked like recently disturbed. So I walked up to it, saw it on the ground, walked back into the pine trees and sat down. And half hour later, there was a deer 30 yards away. So he was regularly returning to it and checking it out. It was part of his, I'm communicating about, this is part of my range. This is where I am. Um, so yeah, that was to me, that was awesome because that was the first time I had ever found such a fresh scrape and I knew what to do, which was just walk away from it, sit down right next to it. You know, and, uh, and the deer was right there. So that's like a, a perfect, uh, scenario that you know you kind of play it out in your head and then it's able to happen sometimes if if you know what you're looking for um so those yeah, scrapes awesome. are really cool uh let's see what else do i want to say about their behavior um oh the the bucks they lose their antlers every single year um yeah let me pull some pictures actually since uh got some i don't think ones. your screen's up right now no Okay, let me share. Oh, here we go. Okay, you seeing it? Oh, it's my cam. Yep. Um, yeah, so I found, uh, I found a spy cam hanging from, from some tree branches a few months ago when I pulled the card, I found some evidence of some poaching. Um, but 
but I also found a lot of other cool pictures and this is one of them. So uh, this is uh, taken during the, the summertime. So this is July, in Northern Michigan. You'll actually see that his antlers look a little fuzzy. Um, and also his color is maybe not what you're really used to seeing deer, which is like a more like tannish brown. Um, so yeah, they, they definitely, they go through, uh, they grow their antlers every year and they get this fuzzy velvety stuff on them and they, uh, they shed that velvet off uh, just before the breeding season every year. And they also um, change their coat. So they go from this really reddish color into like the tan color that you're used to. Um, yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Um, let's see. All right, I'm going to stop sharing. Okay. Um, let's see. All right, so the day cycle of, of deer. So uh, they're generally starting to become active uh, about two hours before first light. So by active, they're, they're getting up and they're, they're beginning to feed. So they'll be in their feeding areas from two hours to before first light roundabouts until about two hours after. And this, of course, can vary depending on have they found a food source they really like? Do they feel like they're being pressured by predators? Uh, how's the weather? How's the weather been the last few days? There's a lot of variation in it. Uh, but that's like just what I would think is about two hours before first light and two hours after is when they'll be the most active. Uh, and the same thing applies to last light about two hours before to two hours after is when they'll be the most active. Uh, there's actually a term for that uh, animals that are most active at dawn and dusk, but I don't remember what it is and didn't write it down. So couldn't tell you. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, other than that, when they're not most active, they're bedded down. Um, so as in they're laying down, digesting their food, uh, hanging out in their family groups, chewing their cud. Um, maybe they get up and eat a little bit around their beds during the day, but uh, not very much. Um, they're, they're pretty inactive throughout the day. And of course, this can, this can vary. Like if, if people are disturbing them and bumping them, or if they really need to get food for some reason, then they'll be more active. Or during the rut, like I said, bucks will be active all day. They'll chase bucks and, until they fall, or chase those until they fall over, basically. Um, but yeah, generally when you're thinking about that, those are the hot parts of day is right at dawn and dusk. Um, so, uh, you can hunt in the middle of the day, but it's not super productive. So I would say definitely target those morning, uh, and evening hunts. And every hunter I talk to seems to say they have the most luck in the evening. I personally have seen more deer in the morning, but I haven't been doing this very long. Um. And uh, yeah, so like I mentioned, all of your tactics, they have to account for the deer's sense of smell. So if, if the deer smells you, and they will, it doesn't matter what you do. If you take a shower with scent-free soap, spray yourself with commercial product, like they make, they make product that they allege will kill your scent, stuff like that. It does not matter what you do. They will smell you. So what you have to do is you have to play the wind. You have to play the wind or you have to play the odds um, or a little bit of both. So most white-tailed deer hunting is uh, ambush hunting, or it's also known as like stand hunting. So you pick a spot, you sit in that spot, and you wait for the deer to come to you. So that's why uh, finding these ground scrapes, finding antler rubs, finding tracks, finding tracks and poop, finding uh, evidence of deer eating, uh, whether it be branches or acorns, you got to find that stuff uh, because you're not going to call the deer to you or you're not going to run out, you know, run across the woods and find them. It's not going to happen. Absolutely not. Um, they're going to come to you most of the time. Um, so there's a few ways you can do that. Uh, the way I, I was doing it when I started was just with a foam pad, like literally a piece of foam sitting on the ground uh, with a bow. 
and I was choosing places uh, based on uh, wind direction. So you look at the weather before you go out hunting and get a get an inkling of it. But then I have like uh, I bought these online, which are just like these little like uh, cotton like fibers, and you just release them out in the wind, and it'll tell you your wind direction. And if you don't want to do that, then you can use like this is a bag of like cattail yarn. I got took took this out of some nice Michigan public land, and the stuff is so close to uh, lighter than air that you can use it to determine your wind direction. So like I'm not gonna sit down and say I'm hunting here before I check the wind and think okay, is my scent being blown anywhere that I feasibly think a deer can be? Um, and that's what that's what you're trying to avoid. And that's that's your only chance. Um, if they smell you, they if, if they're not very sensitive to humans, um, then maybe they'll they'll push through it and keep walking, but they'll be really sensitive. Um, a lot of times they'll start the blowing, which sounds like a sounds like an animal like screaming in the woods almost. Um, or they'll stomp their hooves or they'll grunt, um, like make their calling noises, uh, anything to try to say, Hey, are you a deer? Uh, or are you a bird or what, what's going on over there? What is that? Um, they're very curious and, um, and, and the smarter they are and the older they are, the less chances they take. So if you're smelled, you're basically done. Happened to me this year, heard a deer grunting, knew that, knew that the wind was at my back and, uh, there's nothing to it. I tried to, tried to grunt back and, and entice him, but they knew there was no, I, I didn't stand a chance as long as he's standing there smelling human. So that's what you have to defeat um, with, with deer. Um, and then one more, uh, I guess if you're not going to sit on the ground, people also use tree stands, uh, blinds, which is like a, basically a tent that you can shoot through. Um, or uh, there's now people use saddle systems, which is what I use. It's basically like a simplified, like climbing harness that you use to climb a tree and hang off the tree. Um, which sounds like it would be uncomfortable and unsafe, but it's actually, it's actually really comfortable. And it's nice because you can see all the way around the entire tree. Um, and then the last technique for deer would be still hunting, which is not what it sounds like. Um, still hunting doesn't uh, involve uh, sitting still for the entire time. Rather, you would maybe uh, pick, pick a good spot the same way that you would pick uh, an ambush spot. Uh, stay for an hour and maybe move two to 300 yards, sit for an hour uh, and repeat that for as long as you want to hunt. Uh, but the key thing there is that we're picking good spots and we're staying in them for a full hour at least um, is the key to still hunting. And that is a viable technique. Still hunting is how I uh, harvested my first year in 2020. Not to say that I did it exceptionally well, but fortune favored me that day a little bit. Well enough. Yep. Well enough. Yep. That's all you need. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing in the chat, stalking is really good. Uh, depending on where you are, like out West, uh, things are different, right? Uh, you, in Michigan, I'm not shooting 300 yards. There's, I can't see line of sight 300 yards anywhere in the entire state that I'm aware of. Um, but out West things are different, uh, stalking, uh, using binoculars, spot and stalk. Um, still hunting is, I mean, it is viable, especially in the snow, if there's tracks to follow. Um, but I would say that the highest success rates come from you're sat in a good spot and you're sitting there for three or four hours. That's the highest success rate for deer hunting. Um, yeah. And, uh, in terms of finding those spots, um, there's a lot of ways to do it. I mean, you, you walk in, find tracks on the ground, find poop, uh, find evidence of eating. So they eat acorns. If they eat, uh, branches, they don't have sharp incisor teeth. So the branches will be frayed. So if you see a lot of, a lot of frayed, like buddy branches, new growth, that's deer. Um, so that's what you're looking for when you pick these spots. And really you're just picking high odd spots. That's all you can do. 
And uh, if you can go out in the winter time, then you can use the snow to your advantage and you can uh, remove a lot of uncertainty. So if you go out in the snow, there's no question about where the deer lay down in bed because they lay down, their body heat melts the snow. It leaves a huge depression in the snow. It's icy in the bottom. There's no doubt a deer laid down right here. Um, and if you use that information, then you then you can uh, turn that right into venison, if, uh, essentially, if you use that information properly. Um, yeah. And th that's what I did this year. Uh, I took uh, one deer this year, and I took it uh, 60 yards from a spot that I had found bedding in the snow in February. Um, yeah. So that's... Yeah, and I think, like, all of what you're talking about, these different techniques and, like, the things you're looking for, um, it all points to, like, having a better understanding of your local ecology and understanding what to look for yes. what what do deer eat if you're hunting deer what do turkeys eat if you're hunting turkey how do you identify okay this branch looks like it was nibbled on but is this a species that a deer would eat or like what does that say about like how desperate are the deer if they're eating pine for example you, you can start to kind of figure out what's going on and wait if there's something nearby where you're hunting and um, it's just going to increase your odds and give you a better appreciation for the animal itself and the, the ecosystem that's providing it. Yeah. And that's one of the big benefits of hunting is that you get out and you pay, you know, I, people get out in the woods and they pay a lot of attention to stuff, you know, when they're foraging and when they're camping and backpacking, but I'm just not convinced that you're paying the same type of attention that I am when I'm, when I'm hunting and looking for game signs. Um, not that it's any, not, not that it's a moral or right or wrong thing or anything like that, but I think we're just looking for different stuff. Uh, and the more you know, the more you know. So yeah, there's more layers. Yeah, there is. Uh, and like I, like I said, I didn't even understand like which way tracks, like tracks on the ground. I thought that it meant the deer was walking south when the deer was walking north. Like I, I was that lost when I started. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot to learn, and it feels really good to learn this kind of stuff. Like this is a, uh, it's at our roots, uh, our evolutionary roots. We're made for this stuff. Okay, uh, we're we're running along pretty far here, Andy. What do you think? You want me to talk about turkeys? Uh, well, what else did you want to talk about, as well as turkeys? Do you have anything else? Uh, no, I think just turkeys. Uh, sure, why not? Let's do turkeys. We're not going <laughs> to save it for another day, so let's do it. Nah, no, let's do it. Okay, so uh, turkeys. So uh, again, so we should start thinking. Start off by thinking what kind of senses uh, these animals have. Um, so turkeys, they don't have a sense of smell like most birds, uh, or I think all birds, maybe I'm not a biologist. I don't know, but turkeys don't have a sense of smell, uh, but they do have really, really good eyesight and they have a really good hearing. So those are the sense senses that you're trying to defeat. Um, so those are, as you can imagine, they, they present different challenges. Um, turkeys are, uh, less in, I, I don't really want to say this. They're less intelligent than deer. Maybe intelligent is not quite the right word. Um, they're different. They, you know, they're bird brained. Uh, they follow patterns more closely. Um, they take less risks because I think that, I think that their, their lower intelligence makes them more wary of threats. So they see something they don't like. They're not, they're not taking a risk, um, more so than a deer. Whereas a deer might be a little curious that, uh, mammalian curiosity that we share. Um, yeah, so that's what you're trying to defeat. So turkeys uh, breed in the spring. That's when we hunt them, unless you're doing a, a fall hunt, which is like a management hunt. So that's not not typical. Um, so what they do, uh, they make a whole hell of a lot of noise, especially in the spring. So the the turkeys, the females, they they yelp, um, cluck, and uh, make a few other noises. Um, 
to, to locate each other, to communicate, and then to, um, for, for their breeding purposes. So uh, generally in the woods, uh, hens make a whole bunch of yelping and clucking noises and toms come to them. So the male turkeys come to the female turkeys. Um, and they uh, frequently gobble back. So if you use a turkey call in the woods, the, the turkey will gobble back. It's, a, it's really, really cool actually to interact with them like that. I love uh, but, using but, my little turkey collar. It's the best. Yeah. So, so uh, different turkey calls. There's the kind that you use like a little stick in a pot, which I think I have one right here. But I know I'm talking too much. So, like this this kind of deal, I'm not going to do it and make everybody hear it. Um, and then there's the ones uh, you can put in your mouth, which are like the ones I prefer, which it's like a musical instrument. It's like a, a, a reed in your mouth, basically. Um, and there's the box. Yeah. Then there's the boxes. Um, so lots of ways to call them, uh, depending on what you're comfortable uh, or what you want to learn. Um, but it's not the normal, it's not the biological case. So the biological case is hen makes noise, Tom comes to, or uh, uh, hen comes to Tom. But in our case, we're trying to entice the Tom to come into us. So there's different techniques we use, such as calling, getting a call back, and then moving away and calling again. And the Tom goes, oh, what the hell? Uh, you're moving away from me, and then he'll pursue you. Or... Uh, calling and then stopping dead silent. Like, don't give them anything like, you know, play hard to get like you're, you're really like you're, you're entering into these birds mating ritual really. Um, so there's lots of different techniques that you can use. Um, when my partner uh, and I hunted, uh, we, uh, one of us with the gun, one of us calling was the way we were mostly doing it. And we were doing that with the intention of uh, being able the person calling, being able to move and, and try to pull the bird to the person with the gun. Um, so there's lots of techniques you can use, uh, you know, teamwork wise, uh, turkey hunting is a ton of fun because the birds call back. It's, it's an interaction. Even if they don't come to you, it's an interaction. It's a lot, it's a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, because it's an unusual case, you have to employ those, those different types of strategies. And you also have to, uh, set up carefully because that Tom, he's going to say he's going to be already uh, on high alert because you've violated their baiting ritual by not coming to him as uh, the hen that you are imitating. So he's already pretty alert. If he sees anything he doesn't like, he's out of there. He's not coming any closer. Um, so that's why well, you got to be careful. Um, so we hunt them with uh, basically exclusively ambush hunting. And the ambush hunting is uh, even more different than deer because they have really good eyesight. So you generally are using fallen trees uh, hilltops, things like that to hide yourself until the turkey is 30 yards, 40 yards away. Um, in my case, we there was a lot of places where we would uh, try to call the bird to the top of the hill to shoot up and shoot him at the top of the hill. And you can get away with this because of shotgun ballistics. Uh, of course, you wouldn't be shooting a rifle like that. Um, but shotgun ballistics allow you to do things like that. Um, so uh, day cycle of a turkey, they sleep in trees. Uh, it's actually really crazy to see these gigantic ass birds up in a tree. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so that's where they, they spend their nights. Um, they start gobbling while it's still dark out in the morning. So in the, in the morning, it's dead silent. Then you start hearing songbirds and then the turkeys start. That's like, that's how the wood sounds in the morning. And it's loud as hell. Like you'll hear it from hundreds of yards away. Um, They'll do that kind of just to figure out where each other are. So they'll they'll even yelp a little bit sometimes, the hens will. They're trying to figure out, okay, where's the flock, things like that. Uh, and then they fly down a little bit after first light, after they check for predators. They look around, okay, nothing nothing here, fly down. 
and it's really loud. So if you're like in the woods close to birds because you heard them gobbling and you snuck up on them, you'll hear them fly down. Uh, it's really, really cool sensation. Um, and then they go to their, their, into their breeding things. So they're actively seeking out, uh, hens, Tom, Tom's and, uh, hens are actively seeking each other out through their normal mating ritual of calling and calling back. Um, once they find each other, they hold up together. So it seems like every day they're most active in the morning and the activity just tapers throughout the day. And that's because they found each other. They're doing their mating rituals and, um, things like that. Um, so most of turkey hunting is, is hottest in, in the morning. Uh, let's see. And then they return to their uh, trees uh, at dusk. So before it's dark out, they'll be back in their trees. Uh, and most places you, you can't shoot them in trees and stuff like that. Yeah, um, they usually go up like an hour before sunset. Yeah. Yeah. So turkey hunting is definitely different. Whereas in deer hunting, you could shoot a deer in the last minute of light. Uh, it's not going to happen with turkeys. Um, yeah. So it's definitely a different style of hunting. Um, like I said, it's ambush hunting, but it's, I'm sitting down in a spot and I'm calling and I'm waiting. If I'm not hearing a call back in 30, 35 minutes, I'm going somewhere else, hundreds of yards away. Um, I'm calling only a little bit as I'm moving only because I don't want him to get the idea that I'm coming towards him uh, because then he'll say, Oh, she's coming. And he, and he won't come to me, uh, which is actually what I ended up doing to my birds that I harvested this year. Um, and that's why it took so long to, to, to make the harvest is because I moved, I made a mistake. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's improvised ambush hunting. So you move, set up, call, and then you're literally playing it by ear, uh, literally playing it by ear. And when those toms, uh, when they decide to come to you, sometimes they will, they'll gobble back a few times and then they will stop, but they will come to you. So, um, be careful about getting up too soon if you've had a had a turkey calling back to you. Um, oh, and one more thing you can do to locate them if you don't want to use a turkey call is you can use a crow call or an owl call or slam the car door really loud. Um, when they get startled, they gobble. So any loud uh, noise can can force a gobble. It's called shot gobbling. So it helps you find the birds without uh, making them think you're a uh, hen turkey. Um, cool. All right, cool. I think that's the end of my turkey spiel. <laughs> yeah, so um, there's there's a lot to learn. The first step is wanting to do it and figuring out the the legal sides of things so you don't get in a lot of trouble because when it comes to guns, there's not a lot of gray area. And especially when it comes to guns and other living things, there's very clear, explicit, well, I won't say clear, but explicit rules. Uh, around how you can use them and things like that. So it's really important to like have a grasp on that and then figure out what you want to hunt can guide a lot of the conversations around um, what you need to learn and, you know, the, the things about the animal, the, the methodologies and things like that. Um, looks yeah, like someone is a fan it. of your work. That's <laughs> yeah, great to see. Uh, you know, I made, the, I made my Instagram account because I was posting too many hunting pictures on Maine. And it's turned into uh, connecting to leftists and all kinds of people all over the place. So it's better than you yeah. could hope for. Yeah, it's super cool. I'm, I was super happy when I found you and uh, just seeing other folks doing cool stuff and uh, posting about it and trying to make it more accessible to, to a community that I think only a few years ago would have been very resistant to the idea. Yeah, it's nice to see things uh, things changing, and you know I'm not I'm not the only one. I'm just one of uh, many many people that are doing this. Uh, 
so yeah, I mean, it, you know, find me on Instagram and if you're looking for people in a certain area, then I'll, you know, I'll let you know who I know and stuff like that is, is connect and share knowledge and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, sometimes these sectors will be a little hostile towards folks like us. Yeah. And, you know, obviously take the normal precautions if you're going into those spaces about like not advertising who you are in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, it, if that's the only way you can get access to these things, it is what it is. Um, of course, like we've said, there are a bunch of organizations that can help you out that might exist outside of the scope of like traditional gun culture. Um, but those, if those aren't available, like they're, you know, be thoughtful, but you can access a lot of spaces. Um, so I don't know if before we wrap up, if you wanted to talk about um, some of your practices when you do hunt a deer or a turkey uh, and kind of what that process looks like. Yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, like ritual, every time I go out, I don't feel anything like that. Um, but my approach is uh, definitely, you know, I feel a lot of respect toward these animals and, and really like respecting them for their ability to, to survive out. Like you, you sit out in the woods for four hours when it's 20 degrees and tell me you're not impressed by what a deer can do. Um, so yeah, I, I feel that very strongly. And, um, so, so far I, I've, uh, I've killed two deer, uh, a, a turkey, a woodcock and a grouse. So not, a, not a lot of, um, lives taken yet. Um, but that number will grow. And every time I felt about the same, uh, it's not, it's like a regret adjacent. It's not quite regret. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know exactly how to describe it. Um, uh, but it's certainly emotional, but I would say that every, every single time I have laid my hand on, uh, on an animal on the ground, the very first words out of my mouth are, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I would Nothing describe it as say. like, yeah, I would describe it as like a sinking feeling, like yeah. the weight of the presence of that moment, I think is yes. probably the way I would describe it. Yeah. Cause I just as easily could have set the bow down. Uh, I chose to interact with, uh, with nature and interact in, in the food chain. Like, uh, I don't know, it's a heavy decision. Like, I don't want to like be overly dramatic about it or anything, but yeah, it's a heavy decision. And, uh, I even found that the first time I was trying to eat venison that I had harvested, I, I want to say it was like, uh, again, I'll use it. The, I'll say disgust adjacent. Like I was almost like repelled by this, like how alienated can you be from your own food? Like, yeah, it was, it was really troubling to me, but, uh, if, you know, if, you feel those kind of challenges, uh, I would say that, that, that those feelings don't last uh, as long as you're, you know, behaving ethically and uh, and not doing something you don't want to do. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Uh, but. Yeah, yeah, well said. Uh, Adam, this has been great. Thanks so much. Um, I'm sure a bunch of folks watching will be definitely checking out your uh, Instagram handle and hopefully throwing a couple bucks over to Hunters of Color. Uh, so, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for letting me uh, talk so long. I appreciate you. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. So thank you, guys. Uh, we had a bunch of people tune in the entire time, which is really cool to see. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with the Poor Proles Almanac, you just stumbled here somehow. We are a podcast. Highly recommend going to check it out. We do a lot of content on agriculture and food systems. If that's your thing, we have an episode coming out next Monday on the Spanish Dehesa system. So if you're curious about that Iberian ham, uh, it, it'll be an interesting one. You can get access to it now by 
uh, jumping on our Patreon, and all the episodes drop a week early. So you can go to patreon.com slash Almanac for $2 a month, less than $0.07 cents a day, or about $0.07 cents a day. You can uh, make this stuff continue going on. Next week, we are going to be joined again by the, the Comrade Chef, as I've called him, and he has not dubbed himself that. Uh, we're going to be talking about making fermented hot sauce. So I think there's going to be a lot of interest in that, especially if you're going hunting. Get some good hot sauce to join you on that uh, that first meal. And that's basically it. I appreciate you guys. This has been great. And uh, if, oh, yeah, I'm not used to this. We are now an affiliate or whatever with um, with Twitch. So that means if you want to, you can um, subscribe to us on here, which would be great. And again, much like Patreon, help support the podcast and the project. And, you know, as long as we see people continuing to be engaged and interested in us making this Twitch content, uh, we're going to keep doing it because it's really important. We want to get that information out there. We want to do, you know, this whole series is about uh, essentially skill sharing. And, you know, these are necessary skills that more people should have. We don't always have access to spaces where we can get that information. So that's generally the idea. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I think you did if you're still here. It's been an hour and a half. So thanks so much. Uh, the Prime subscriptions are great. We do get a couple bucks out of it. So that's super cool. Um, I think you get a free Prime subscription. I, I don't I don't use Twitch outside of this, so I can't really speak to it. I'm basically um, a, an ape smashing a keyboard. Um, but if you have Prime and you don't subscribe anywhere, give us a, your Prime subscription, I guess, and you can help support us making cool shit like this, like next week's uh, fermented hot sauce. So until next time, guys, thanks so much, and uh, we'll see you around.